Welcome to FPC Meridian Sermon Podcast. We pray that God's hand would be upon you as you listen to the faithful preaching of His Word. Let's begin. This is part three in the series all about Christmas. Part three is entitled Christmas Loneliness. My text will be two different texts. We'll look at Isaiah chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 1. My sources include uh, Bob Deffenbaugh's studies in the book of Matthew, John MacArthur's God With Us, the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, and a message by Juan Sanchez, What Child Is This? My scripture again, Isaiah 7, we'll read verse 14, and then Matthew 1, 18 through 23. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is the word of God. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And then we turn over to the gospel of Matthew, Matthew's gospel, chapter one, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. And this is Hundreds of years after Isaiah prophesied this, his mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. The grass withers. The flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we give you praise for this, your word. We ask that you would help us to understand it, Lord. Thank you for the people that are gathered here today. Lord Jesus, you know them better than I. And so I pray that you would touch each one of them and open their hearts to hear your word. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. A British medical doctor, whose name I cannot pronounce, shares a story about his interaction with Doris. Doris, an 82-year-old hospital patient. Two days before Christmas, Doris seems healthy, ready for discharge. But for some reason, she keeps complaining about inexplicable health issues. Her doctor writes these words. Yesterday, it was her arm that was hurting. Before that, her hip Truth is, Doris is an incredibly healthy 82-year-old, and we can't find anything wrong. I have no doubt that it will be the same today. When the x-rays came back normal, he told Doris that he'd have to stick to the plan of sending her home. Doris looked down at the floor and quietly said, "I, I don't want to go home. It's just me, and I'm all alone, and there are so many hours in the day. After a pause, a long pause, she sighed and asked, Doctor, can you give me a cure for loneliness? 
which led to this doctor writing an article entitled The Epidemic of Loneliness. Here's what he says. I wish I could say yes to Doris. I wish I could prescribe her some antidepressants and be satisfied that I had done my best. But the truth is, she's, she's not clinically depressed. It's just that she has been left behind by a world that no longer revolves around her, not even the littlest bit. He continues, there are thousands like her, men and women, from, for whom time stands empty as they wait in homes full of silence. They are no longer coveted by a society addicted to youth. Doris is alone, and it brings home the truth of this epidemic that we now have on our hands, an epidemic of loneliness. The most difficult part is that I don't know how to solve this, although I wish I could. For now, I simply retract my diagnoses. Sheepishly, I insist that Doris spends her Christmas this year on the ward, and I can see immediately her mood lift. The late Mother Teresa knew what she was talking about when she once said the biggest disease today. And again, you have to remember Mother Teresa worked with the lepers in Calcutta. The biggest disease today is not leprosy. It's the feeling of being uncared for, of being unwanted, of being deserted and alone. The doctor with the unpronounceable name is correct. Loneliness has become a societal epidemic and not just among the elderly. According to the Internet market research firm YouGov, quote, the social media generation is the one that feels most alone. Their latest report details a surge in feelings of loneliness among the millennial generation currently between the ages of 23 and 38. And in the latest poll, 30 percent of millennials feel lonely either always or often compared to 20 percent of their boomer counterparts. 22% of millennials say they have no friends. Researchers are also interested in the question of how Internet accessibility factors into the whole equation. Millennials are the most likely to be frequently online. So it's possible that consistent social media usage on personal devices could be contributing to feelings of loneliness. Now, I want to think about this. It's one thing to be alone. It's quite another thing to be lonely. I hope you know the difference. Even Jesus knew what it was like to be alone. Yet even though he was often alone, he was never lonely. I hope you know there's a difference. To be alone is to be separated from others. Sometimes it's by design in order to experience some solitude. And all of us need that. But to be lonely is to be sad because you are alone. So let's look at two lessons this morning from our text. The first being God with us. God with us. Before Jesus' disciples deserted him on that last night so that he had to face his arrest and crucifixion basically alone, Jesus said to them, A time is coming and has come when you be, you'll be scattered each to his own home, you will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. So what's he talking about? He's talking about the presence of God. The presence of God, which because of Christmas, you and I can now experience. I want you to think about this God with us for a moment. Emmanuel meaning God with us. You have the privilege, through faith in Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, to receive the Spirit of God within you. 
John 14, verse 16, Jesus says, I will ask the Father. He will give you another counselor to be with you forever. And that word another means another of the same kind. So basically, Jesus says, I will ask the Father. He will give you another one just like me. Another me. To be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. This was prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit that Jesus prophesied that. And that promise has been fulfilled so that for those who believe, for those who have transferred trust from themselves to Jesus Christ, they not only have God's presence with them, but also inside of them. And as Paul, the apostle, reminded the Colossians, God has chosen to make known this mystery. And it is a mystery, the mystery being Christ in you, the hope of glory. Does Christ live inside of you? Now, for just a moment, I want us to go back in time to Joseph's day. The angel of the Lord comes to him, prepares him that something miraculous, something mysterious has taken place in his fiancée. Mary has become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And the child in her womb is the Messiah, the long-promised Messiah, who will make it possible for many people to draw close to God. So we have this prophecy from Isaiah, and then we have the prophecy fulfilled in Matthew. But, but how did it all happen? Well, about 2,700 years ago, there was a city named Jerusalem. It's still there. And at the close of the 10th century B.C., the kingdom of Israel had split into two kingdoms, the kingdom of the north and the kingdom of the south. All of the kings of the north were pretty much evil. And a good many of the ones in the southern kingdom, they, they were evil too. But there was a number of godly kings in that southern kingdom of Judah. Our text brings us to the late 8th century B.C. in Isaiah chapter 7 under the rule of the very, very wicked king Ahaz. He's of the southern kingdom of Judah. Ahaz was unlike his four predecessors who loved the Lord. Ahaz did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't feel that God was big enough to meet his needs or the needs of his people. And so he made images of Baal and he watched the infants being sacrificed in the valley of Hinnom. He worshipped in the high places, which was a locality selected for the worship of false deities. Ahaz even went so far as to burn incense and to make sacrifices to these false gods that he worshipped. But the focus of our text in Isaiah 7 is really not so much on wicked Ahaz, but instead on the, on the kingdom over which he ruled. The kingdom of Judah was being threatened with conquest by the northern alliance of Samaria and Damascus. And because he was afraid of these allied forces, Ahaz did a dumb thing. He called on the enemy to help him. He sent word to Tiglath-Pileser III, the leader of Assyria, and he asked him if he would come and attack Damascus and Samaria so that they would go home. Well, Ahaz's plan worked for the most part, but Ahaz had to pay tribute to Tiglath-Pileser. Judah would even pay more through future devastation from Assyrian rulers in the years ahead. It was a costly decision for the nation of Judah made by the king. God had warned Ahaz, but he wouldn't listen. Isaiah told him, Isaiah the prophet told him that his real enemy was not these smaller neighboring kings, but his real enemy was the mighty Assyrians, and he better stay away from them. But anyway, he appealed to them for help. 
God even told Ahaz that the invasion he feared from Damascus and Samaria would not happen. It wouldn't happen because the allies had human hearts while Judah, particularly Jerusalem, had a divine head. So God even encouraged Ahaz to ask him for a sign to prove, to prove it was so. He indicated ways that a prophet's message could be tested. And so if you look with me in Isaiah 7, verse 11, it says this, ask, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. And listen to verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask the Lord. I will not put the Lord to the test. He was an arrogant guy. So at this point, when Ahaz refuses God's offer of help, I mean, you really don't turn God down. He offers to help. Ahaz turns him down. So God is really put out with Ahaz. He's upset with Ahaz. He decides he's going to give him a sign anyway. And so God gives Ahaz this word that I read to you a few moments ago. And it's not a gentle word. It's an emphatic word. So look at verse 13. Then Isaiah said, and whenever Isaiah is speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit, he's speaking for God. Hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The Lord himself is going to give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. God was saying he would replace the weak and faithless occupant of David's throne. A child would be born who would be more worthy to sit on David's throne. One who could take the government on his own shoulder. Emmanuel did not appear for more than seven centuries, although some thought he was Hezekiah. Isaiah both promised and threatened that this sign would not come from the house of Ahaz, but would come from a nameless virgin whom God had singled out to give birth to the Messiah. And that's what we read about in Matthew chapter 1. So Jesus is God with us. But that's not the only reason we make such a big deal about this child at Christmas. The second lesson is God is for us. God is for us. If you keep reading in Isaiah on into chapter 8, there's an invasion from Syria that's promised that is going to consume the enemies of God's people. And then in chapter 9, we have another promise. So if you'll turn with me to Isaiah. Isaiah again. And this time chapter 9. In chapter 9, this promise says that it's during a time of great darkness among the people and in the land. And the promise is that in spite of what they're experiencing at the present time, there will come a great light. So listen to Isaiah 9, starting at verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Of those living in the land of the shadows of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Listen to this in verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. 
So let me see if I can help you understand this. In Isaiah chapter 7, Ahaz is scared to death because people were coming and invading Judah. He does not believe God. He doesn't trust God. So God gives him a sign that a child will be born and the child's name will be Emmanuel. So in Isaiah 9, in this time of intense darkness, God promises that he will send a light and that this one who brings light is going to put an end to all war. All war. Oppression. All darkness. It will be over. This is the Messiah he's talking about. The image here of every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood, destined for burning, fuel for the fire, implies that the war has ended. So it's a prophecy. The child who will come will end war, so there will be no more war. That's the promise that God is giving to his people in the midst of the threat of invasion from foreign enemies. And then we read this in verse 6. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this child born over 2,000 years ago in a little town called Bethlehem is not only Emmanuel, God with us, but the Bible tells us he's also God for us. It's simply amazing to think that God is with us and then to add that he's on our side. He's for us. The scripture in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, says, If God be for us, who can be against us? What a great promise. Well, honestly, at times it can seem like the whole world is against us. I mean, can it? Might seem that way to you based on how you've been living, how your life has gone. May seem like there's been a lot of opposition. You know, when we repeat the Apostles' Creed like we did this morning, we say, I believe in a holy Catholic church. It's always confusing to people that aren't part of our church because they ask, what are you saying there? You, you believe in the Roman Catholic Church? No, it didn't say Roman. It said holy Catholic church. Catholic means universal. So we're saying we believe in the holy universal church. That there are Christians all over the world that we're tied to through faith in Jesus Christ. So if you're a Christian today, and I don't know if you are, but if you are a Christian today and Christ is in your life, then you're a part of the church universal. And again, only if you've made a commitment to Christ are you a part of the church universal. And so a person who is a Christian was not only born for the church, you were born to be a part of this family of believers here at First Presbyterian. All because of what Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has done on your behalf by coming into this world, living a perfect life, Dying on the cross and rising from the dead. You know, the church, the writers of the New Testament, they never considered, they never considered that a person who became a believer would not be a participant in a local church. They just didn't. You don't really see anything in the New Testament about church membership. But you see all these different things that we're going to talk about here for a moment. And again, because of the society we live in, I'm hearing more and more people who want to pull away from membership in a local church, almost to the point... Where joining a church is one of the most countercultural things a person can do. Honestly, becoming a church member means leaving behind the comfort of individualism and voluntarily allowing, allowing yourself to be tied up with other people. It's actually a beautiful picture of the gospel to be a part of a church family like this. The Bible gives us a number of reasons, even metaphors, for belonging to a local church in the New Testament. First is the word body. The word body. 
there is an organic relationship implied in the imagery of the body. In Corinthians, Paul says, now you are all members of his body and each one of you are a part of it. Are you a part of it? Are you a part of not only maybe this church, but another church? If you're a part of another church family, that, that's great. And maybe you're visiting here today. But if you're not a part of a church, then there is something missing from your life. Choosing to be a functioning part of the member of the body of Christ is a very important decision to make. And the, the New Testament talks about it being a body. Secondly, it talks about it being a flock. We have flocks in this church. We've divided our congregation into flocks. And we have shepherds and and lay shepherds that are actually elders in this church that are helping people grow in God's grace and assisting, hopefully, you in your walk with Christ. The Bible gives elders a special responsibility for a specific group or community of people, and it calls them a flock, like in Acts 20, verse 28. It says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. That's a charge to the elders. It seems clear that elders... In the scripture are responsible to a particular group of people. Otherwise, that verse makes no sense whatsoever. And then family. Family is a word that you see in the scriptures. So I want you to know that church is a family, not an event. Not a place. As parents are responsible for those in their own family, in the same way church leaders are responsible for those of you who have made a commitment to Christ and to this church. And so by aligning yourself with us as a church through membership, you become an integral part of this church family. And as a result, you're asking us to help you with your own spiritual growth and the spiritual nurture and growth of your own children. A good case in point is baptism today. The baptism of a child welcomes this child into the fellowship of the believers, even as an infant. And enabling them to be a part of this family of believers based on the faith of their parents. You know, I'm convinced that in general, the best therapy for loneliness is to get out of yourself and actually lose yourself in service to God and in service to other people. Mark 10, verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus laid down his life on the cross, but Jesus also laid down his life every single day for people that he might serve their needs. And so I have an assignment for you. You have an insert in your bulletin that uh, you may have wondered, what in the world is that about? It says Psalm 68 on it. If you'll take that card out at this time. And it just says Psalm 68 on one side. And, and some of you have probably been reading Psalm 68 during the sermon just so you can figure it out. But... Uh, let me try to explain it for you. Um, the other side of the card reads, I will be Psalm 68 for someone in our church. Or I would appreciate someone being Psalm 68 for me this Christmas. You know, a lot of you have your family nearby and that's wonderful, but there are many that don't. And then there are many because their family has diminished through death or whatever. They find themselves alone this Christmas. And so the last thing I would want, the last thing our church would want is to have anybody alone at Christmas. And so um, Psalm 68 says God has placed the lonely in families. God has placed the lonely in families. And we talk a lot about our being a, ourselves being a church family. And so let's practice it. I know it's just a couple of days away, but uh, you, could, you could say, yes, I'll be Psalm 68 for someone in this church. I can't do it Christmas Day. I can do it Christmas Eve and have them over after the Christmas Eve service. 
Or you could have them over for Christmas lunch on Christmas Day. Or you may be the one who needs someone to have you over. And so either way, would you please check one of these that applies if you're able. This is not to put anybody in a, in a corner. This is basically to put that out there because I guarantee you there are people in our church that will be alone on Christmas. And that's a sad, sad thing. Sad enough holiday without the opportunity to be together with those who love you and care about you. And that brings us to our verse of the week, which is John 13, verses 34 and 35. Let's read this out loud together. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And if you're able and willing to be Psalm 68 for someone or you need someone to be Psalm 68 for you, if you would just check that and then turn it back face down with Psalm 68 facing up and leave it on your pew when you leave today. And I'm going to ask the deacons if you could collect these and get these to me following the service. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for Christmas. We thank you for coming to us at Christmas. And in all the busyness of the season, some of us have missed Christmas because we've been so busy with so many different things. And so forgive us, Lord. And now it's just a couple of days away from Christmas. I pray that you will help us to return to you, Lord, to turn our lives back over to you, to ask your forgiveness for those of us who are apart from you, Lord, and, and have not had a relationship with you. Maybe for years and years, I pray that that you will touch their heart and even today that they will repent of their sins and in faith trust you as Savior and Lord of their lives. May this be the greatest Christmas for someone in this place by becoming a Christian this Christmas. And Lord Jesus, I ask that you comfort those who are alone this Christmas, that you surround them with people that will love on them and encourage them. Thank you for this church family. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to be a church family, a genuine church family that loves on each other. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.